my system, you understand. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, we stop, we listen, we rejoice, we sing. So much happens when we gather together as your people in the name of Jesus. And I thank you for the privilege that I have of being able to be here today. And uh, each of us thanks you, Lord, that we could be here. We've heard amazing things, holy things, surprising things. We've heard stories of your grace and how you broke through. And Lord, that gives us so much hope as we remember really who you are, that Jesus Christ, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as we look to where we are and where we're going, we have hope in you. So meet us here in this place. You've been here among us. Holy Spirit, keep moving among us. Open our ears to hear. Open our hearts to receive. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Listening to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This is the third and final sermon in our New Year's mini-series from Deuteronomy. And we're calling it a year of transition because that's kind of what 2018 is for us as a church. We've been in between the wilderness and the promised land. We're waiting and listening on the banks of the Jordan before moving forward. And we've discovered the importance of remembering for our imagination about the future. Today, we encounter an invitation for living in a time of transition. It tells us that our pain is real, but so is the presence of God. The title of the message today is The Presence of God for the In-Between Pain. The Presence of God for the In-Between Pain. Deuteronomy is realistic about pain. A lot of Christians are not, but Deuteronomy is. And here's what I mean. Uh, Deuteronomy has a strikingly sad ending. This is the last book in the Torah, a section of the Bible which is organized around the law of God and the promise of the land for the people of God. But the promise is not yet fulfilled. Deuteronomy ends with the hope of entering that land, but not with the actual entering of the land, not with the actual fulfillment of that promise yet. And it's painful to have to keep waiting. This is kind of like having the gospel stories leave out the resurrection of Jesus. Added to that, the greatest prophet that Israel has known, uh, who has guided them through uh, the wilderness for 40 years, all the immense pressures of that, uh, Moses, uh, he dies without entering the promised land. It's kind of a harsh, sad, difficult, and painful ending. Uh, for both us as readers and also especially the characters in the story. We've been asked to wait in between on the banks of the Jordan. We've waited. Now we're ready to enter that promised land, and uh, we're still there. And it's painful. And now the people have to grieve the death of the greatest leader in their history. 
So Deuteronomy is realistic about pain. One thing that strikes me about this ending is that it makes Deuteronomy an incredibly honest book. In many ways, it reflects our experiences in life as we live in a fallen and broken world. For a lot of us, life just doesn't wrap up into a nice, neat bow with a happy ending. Life is not like a sitcom where all the conflicts and troubles are wrapped up in 30 minutes. No, Deuteronomy presents us with the harsh realities of life and of living in between. And we've all moved through deep suffering and great loss of various kinds in our lives. Dreams have been dashed, disappointments have come, and we've had to learn how to cope. This book affirms our reality, the reality of our lives. But even so, that is not the ultimate message of Deuteronomy. Uh, This is not a call for us simply to cope with difficult times and painful circumstances. We are called into something much bigger. We are called to hope. But we must be clear that this is not a call to hope in the perfect fulfillment of all our desires and dreams. No, this is a call to hope in something much more abiding. We are called to hope in God's promise of being with us always. Always. He promises his presence with his people. In spite of all that Israel has suffered, and in the face of the upcoming challenges of taking the land, Moses reminds us in Deuteronomy chapter 31, beginning in verse 2, I am now 120 years old, and I am no longer able to lead you. The Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. Verse 8, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. It's a strange kind of boldness indeed that stares down fear, death, and suffering and proclaims like a trumpet in the darkness, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. The Lord will be with you. God promises his presence in our pain. I have to confess that I found this a bit baffling when I was younger. Uh, The promise of God's presence in the midst of suffering always seemed like faint comfort to me. I would think, Lord, uh, it's very kind of you to offer your presence, but you being present isn't going to fix the problems. I've got a better idea, always a better idea, yes. Why don't you stay up there in heaven and undo all the bad stuff that is happening down here? Just wave your magic wand and make it go away. You know, I'd like to ignore what this promise actually says in favor of a softer, easier, faster way. Fix the problems. But I can't ignore it. Even Jesus, in his last words to his followers, he takes a page right out of Deuteronomy. And he promises his presence. Not a perfect or easy life. Right at the end of the Great Commission, his last words are, and remember, there's that word again, remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's not promising that, you know, all our dreams will come true. 
He's not promising that our lives will be problem-free or pain-free. Instead, he is promising his presence. My problem was, as a younger man, I was often contemplating God's presence in the abstract, like a concept. I had forgotten the tangible impact that God's presence has upon us in our lives. And Deuteronomy is great. It makes God's presence something solid, tangible, real. Remember that for generations, the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. They had been far from their homeland. They had been living among a pagan people surrounded by a pantheon of other gods with only stories and traditions from their forefathers to hang on to. And after hundreds of years, well, that can wear kind of thin. But now, just picture this, now for the past 40 years plus, throughout the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, God has been active among his people again, revealing himself through his works, his deliverance, his miracles, and also through giving the law that came through Moses. So now Moses has come to the end of his life and the end of his tenure as leader in Israel. That's painful for them all. Just like it's painful for me to think of soon departing from being your pastor. Before Moses departs from the scene, he wants to drive home these fundamental truths about the character and the work of God. So he gathers all the people before him. He reviews the law with them, as we mentioned last week. And he then has the book of the law ceremonially placed in the tabernacle, right alongside the Ark of the Covenant. And then, in front of all the people, what do you think he does? Like, what does he do next? What would you do next? Well, here's what he does. He bursts into song. Out of nowhere, he just bursts into song. It's not what we expected. The old man can sing. He's not just a stern lawgiver or a grumpy old leader who's been at it a long time. Not at all. He sings. His heart sings. And what a song. It's a song of praise to the Lord. We call it the Song of Moses. So let's pick up the song at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 32. This is what Moses was singing. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His ways are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. Wow. Wow. Moses uses some great words to describe God in just a couple of verses. He tells us that God is great, that God is perfect, that God is just, that God is faithful, that God is upright, that God does no wrong. That's a pretty good list. It seems like those things alone are reason enough for us to praise God and trust Him. Amen? But having offered us this long list, Moses adds one more thought. He tells us that God is the rock. Right there in the middle of it. God is the rock, by the way. God is the rock. What does he mean by that in particular? Why does he feel it necessary to 
add that particular characteristic to an already impressive list of attributes? Well, it's because God's presence is like a rock that is stronger than our pain. God's presence is like a rock. It's stronger than our pain. So let's take a, just take a look at the image of the rock for a moment. How would ancient people have thought about a rock? God is the rock. Well, we know that to ancient people in particular, rocks were immovable. When they heard the word rock, they probably thought about the massive boulders or the towering rock formations that they had seen on their travels uh, through the wilderness. Those rocks don't move. There were no bulldozers to plow them out of the way, no dynamite to blow them to bits. When you encountered a rock like that in the wilderness, what did you do? You went around it. If you struck a rock ledge when you were building, well, you changed your plans and you built on that rock ledge because it wasn't going to be moved. Rocks didn't move. Rocks didn't change. You know, from time to time, uh, the people in their wanderings through the wilderness would have wandered through familiar places. Like, I think we've been here before. They spent 40 years there, so at times, no doubt they passed through some places they had passed through before. And no doubt things would have changed a little bit. The sands might have shifted with the wind. Uh, The soil might have settled. Uh, There might have been more vegetation or less. Stones and pebbles might have been washed away in a flood. But the rocks, the big rocks, they would not have changed. The rocks would be just the way they were the last time the people passed through. Generally speaking, rocks don't move and rocks don't change. And there's something very comforting about that, isn't there? Isn't it? So comforting. That's why we like to look at big rocks. There's something fascinating about it. That's why we like to take walks along rocky coastlines. That's why it's nice to look up the road and see mountains in the distance. They're always there. They're always the same. One of my favorite rocks in the whole world is Half Dome in Yosemite National Park. It rises up majestically above the Yosemite Valley floor. It's a famous rock. Most people have seen pictures of it. But it's meaningful to me because I grew up near there and... uh, My family often went camping in Yosemite. It was wonderful. And Half Dome was always there. It was there when I was a kid. It was there when I took my kids there. It was there when Shelley and I had met during our college years, and a group of us hiked up the back of Half Dome and camped there. This is back when I had legs. And Shelley and I were just friends then, But I like to think that Half Dome had a role in moving us toward romance. Uh, But that's a story for another time. That rock is so special to me because it's always been there. It's always the same my whole life. It's solid granite, and it's not going anywhere. There's something comforting about that, something so big and solid and dependable. Moses is telling us that God is like that. 
He's always there. And he's always the same. And so when Moses added the word rock to his description of God, he was telling us that all those things he had just said about God were not only true, those attributes, they were not only true, but they were rock true. And what I mean by that is they would always be true. God would always be good. His works would always be perfect. Uh, His ways would always be just. They could count on that. Everything else in life changes, doesn't it? Governments come and go or shut down. The economy rises and falls. Careers wax and wane. People get older. Life is unpredictable. Friends move on. But God is the rock. (laughs) God is the rock. You can count on him. In fact, you can build your life on him, as we sang earlier in the service. And because God is a rock, I have a firm foundation for my life. That's what Moses is saying to his people as he prepares to leave them and they prepare to enter that promised land. He's reminding them. He's reminding them to build their lives, build their homes, build their cities, build their nation on God and his word. He's the rock. God would always be good. His laws would always be right and just. He would be the immovable, unchanging, unshakable foundation for their lives. Years ago when I was a teenager, Bob Dylan sang, How does it feel to be on your own with no direction home like a rolling stone? Sometimes our lives feel like rolling stones, don't they? No direction. Where am I going? But God is a solid rock. In the words of Larry Norman, one of the very first contemporary Christian musicians back in the day, Jesus is the rock that doesn't roll. Jesus is the rock that doesn't roll. Some of you could sing that, I know. (laughs) I wonder if Jesus had this Deuteronomy verse in mind when he told that parable about the wise man who built his house on the rock. We sang about that earlier. The rains came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Is every aspect of your life resting on the unchanging, unshakable, immovable foundation, the person and work of God himself? Your home, your career, your marriage, your family, your reputation, your church, your retirement, my retirement. Does it all rest on the unchanging truths and ways of God? You know, you can build a life on all kinds of foundations. Money, achievement, possessions, work, education, talent, pleasure, relationships. But those things are fleeting. And they're surprisingly fragile. They're here one day and they can be gone the next, washed away by the storms of life. But Jesus said, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Put your trust in Jesus Christ, the rock. Build your life on him. Rest upon him. And you will be saved. You will be secure through every storm that blows your way. 
I honestly don't know what people do whose lives are not founded on the Lord and his word. When life unravels, when things fall apart, when bad things happen, when change comes, and these things all happen over and over again, where do you go? Where do you go? Where do you go for wisdom? Where do you turn for timeless truth? Upon whom do you call for help in the day of trouble? I don't know if it's not the Lord our rock. But praise God, by his grace, I do know where I go. And I know where you go as well. We sing a a hymn about it from time to time around here, how firm a foundation is what we need for our lives. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Because God is a rock, I have a firm foundation for my life in all its changing seasons, and so do you. There's an interesting thing about this image of God as the rock. It assumes that we're going to be in trouble sometimes. In other words, you only need a fortress in the rock if you're under attack. You only need a hiding place in the rock if someone's chasing you down. You only need a rock to stand on if the floods of life are rising. So when we say that God is our rock, we're not saying that bad things won't happen to us. We're saying that bad things won't get to us. They won't conquer us. They won't have the last word over us. Because God is a mighty fortress. He's the rock. And it's not a promise of physical protection necessarily. It's a promise of spiritual security. You see, the Bible describes Satan as the enemy of our souls. And we can go through our days and forget that we have an enemy. He's always prowling around, sniffing around. He's always pursuing. He's always wanting to rob us of joy and peace. He's always wanting to drive a wedge between God and us. Satan wants to accuse us and imprison us with fear and doubt and guilt and anxiety and shame. But he won't be able to do that, the Bible says, if God is our rock. So, when we're in financial trouble, for example, we take refuge in God. A God who knows what we need and a God who provides. A God who can grant us contentment and peace, whether we have much or we have little. When we're in relational trouble, when our heart is breaking, when people we love have hurt us or disappointed us or left us, God doesn't spare us from the pain of that. But he will protect us from bitterness and revenge and anger and isolation. When we find ourselves in spiritual trouble, when we've sinned, when we've wandered far from God, and we find ourselves in a very dark place. Anybody ever found yourself in a very dark place and wondered, how did I get here? We can look to the God who forgives, the God who is present. The one who forgives us for our sins and our failures and restores us to relationship with himself. He is the God who is always there, always watching over us, even when we cannot see him. And when we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we can look to our God 
knowing that he has conquered our greatest and final enemy, even death itself. Jesus can bring us safely through to the other side because he's done that already. And he can make us fully ourselves and fully his as resurrected people. You and I are only partly ourselves here. What a day that's going to be when we are fully ourselves and fully his in the land of glory. Resurrected people. He can bring us into the fullest fellowship beyond what we can imagine with his people and with himself, not just for here and now, but for all eternity. This is the power of Jesus Christ. God's presence is like a solid rock. God with us. God with us. That has the power to overwhelm all the darkness, all the despair, all the doubt. Emmanuel. God with us. This is at the heart of our gospel. Jesus came to be with us in the dirt and the difficulty of life. God's promise of his presence in Deuteronomy is echoed and fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Lord who is our rock. So my friends, we can experience God's presence. We can. Yes, we can. No matter what happens. When life is difficult, when you find hope to be elusive, when you're in between, when you're waiting, when you're in crisis, what do we do? I think we're called to pray for Emmanuel, God with us. That's who Jesus is. That's what he is all about. He wants to be with you. Pray that God will give you the experience of his presence with you and for you through your union with Christ by faith. God's presence can be experienced in a variety of ways. I want to mention a couple as we're closing. And one of those is when God is mediated through our community of faith, the people around us who are part of us. As we shared with each other this morning, those those remembrances of what God did and how he met us, did you not sense that God was with us? Did, Did you sense that? Did it send chills up and down your spine? It was an amazing time that God was with us. He was right here among us. It's like he was enthroned, as the Bible says, on the praises of his people. It's amazing. Another way that the presence of God can be experienced is an ancient ritual designed by Jesus to evoke the mystery of God's presence with us. In the Protestant tradition, sadly, we often miss this reality. It's perhaps the oldest and most familiar ritual in the Christian tradition, which we celebrate together on the first Sunday of every month. We call it communion. And communion is about being with. That's what the word means. Being with. Being with God. Being with each other. So as a symbol through the bread and the cup, we use it to remember the death of Jesus Christ for our salvation until he comes again, until we see him face to face. However, it's more than that. It is a symbol plus. It also invokes God's presence. So it's more than a sign. It's a seal upon our faith about the saving work of Christ for us and his presence with us through his spirit 
as our crucified Savior, as our risen Lord. He is with us. We can see each other, but we can't see Jesus with the physical eye, but he is no less with us than we are with one another. He is here. He's with us as we partake of his supper by faith. Now, we can't explain exactly and precisely all the ins and outs of God's presence in the elements of the Lord's Supper, although Lord knows the church has tried, right? You know, how or where God is in the ritual. We, we don't know if and how God is in the bread and the juice, or if and how he is present and mediated through the gathered community, celebrating this ancient but timeless ritual, or both. But I do know, I would boil it down to say this, he is with us. He is with us. He said, remember me in this. And I think we would do well to embrace a very vibrant theology that affirms the mystery of God's presence with us in communion. So think about that for when we next celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, two weeks from today. Let's end with this for now. Uh, As we live in between, we're in a year of transition. May we experience the presence of God with us as the solid rock. The solid rock that is going to be bigger and stronger than anything that will happen to us or around us in the coming year. That is the awesome power and the living presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as he said, remember, I am with you always. I am with you always. And you can count on that. Amen? Amen. Let's spend a few minutes uh, in prayer just thinking about and turning over in our hearts and minds what we've heard from the Word of God today. Spend a little time in prayer. I'll ask the prayer team if you would please come down to the front. And if you'd like to pray with somebody, uh, please do come for prayer uh, before we leave this place. Uh, And I'll ask the worship team if you would come up and give us some music to pray by. And then we'll close together in worship.